0: Hello, this is Mike Lewis, the founder and managing editor of Where Peter Is. Before we begin this episode of Petersfield Hospital, I would like to make a special request. If you appreciate our work at Where Peter Is and you've gotten something out of our articles and podcasts, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that enables fans or patrons to make a monthly contribution to support content creators. Running Where Peter Is is not free. Our apostolate has grown to the point where I have begun to work on it full time. If we are going to succeed, we need your help. If you would like to support our work on Patreon, please click on one of the links to our Patreon page, or on the button on the right-hand column of wherepeteris.com. Thank you very much for your generosity. We can't do it without you every little bit counts. And now, for part two of our conversation with Sam Rocha. So Sam, I don't know if you're aware, but you actually played a huge part in the creation of where Peter is. I was laid off from my job in mid-2017, and I had been working for the Bishop's Conference. It caught me totally by surprise. I had no idea. I had worked there for seven years. The reason why I worked there was because I wanted to do good for the church. I really felt like my my communication skills, my design skills, my writing skills, my editorial skills, I really wanted to apply those to, to help the church. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I sort of just was a bureaucratic cog in the publications department. And I thought I had been working towards something. And then all of a sudden, it was completely taken away. Mm-hmm. So I was encouraged by some friends, you know, why don't you start a blog? Why don't you start writing? So Deacon Greg Kandra, told me to contact you when you were the channel manager for Pathios, Mm -hmm. for the Catholic channel. And so I did and asked you, I said, I haven't been blogging because when you work for the USCCB, you don't Mm -hmm. air your opinions out in public very often. Here's my Facebook page. I'd be interested in in doing a blog with you guys. And, And you got back to me and you said something to the effect of, I'm waiting on a site redesign, get back to me in a month. And yeah, we'll get you, we'll get you set up. And so certain amount of time passed and I write you back and longer uh, than a month, probably a lot longer than a month and <laughs> ask, Hey, how about that blog you promised me? And you were no longer with Pathios at that yeah. point and you didn't have a successor for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what inspired me to start my own thing. But going back even further to the beginning of that year, mm. there was a piece you wrote, a a blog post that was titled Remember Your Promises: A Note to My Spiritual Elders, mm. written January 10th, 2017. It's still on the Pathios website if anyone wants to mm. to look it up where you discuss just what you were talking about, how you were taught and formed in your faith by people who taught you how to think, who taught you to remain steadfast, who taught you to respect the Pope, obey the Pope, who taught you the meaning of devotions, the significance of Catholic social teaching, to trust the magisterium, who taught you about the living magisterium. That particular piece really got it struck me because I was in a similar place like you where a lot of the people who I had once trusted and looked up to and considered Mm -hmm. good sources of wisdom on the faith and who could maybe help with some of the study, the storm that was occurring in the wake of the Francis papacy. And I was just noticing one by one that they were, that they had all become staunch critics of his. And this was, almost a year after Amoris Laetitia, and then the Dubia had come out. That's sort of the battle line where people seem to be either with the Pope or highly skeptical of him. Hmm. But yeah, no, that article really encapsulated my thoughts. And I've, I also shared it with Paul and it it spoke to him and maybe he can talk about that. But I'm just asking if you can remember Maybe what was going through your mind, and if you still share those sentiments, and if this is what you were referring to when you were talking about the people who had taught you and this anti-intellectual postmodern turn that they've taken.
1: Yeah, uh, Paul, do you have anything to add? It might give me a uh, more footing too.
2: Yeah, I'm curious to know what where you were at when you wrote that. And my own process was, it must have been the 2012 presidential election,
3: mm-hmm. when
2: I realized that the five non-negotiable intrinsic evils the Catholic Answers put in their voting guide that I was always taught was church teaching, mm-hmm. when I went to John Paul II and realized there's a lot more than five of these things oh, yeah. I need to be concerned about.
3: Yeah,
2: And and then in 2016 election, I read the, the U.S. Uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops Voters Guide, and they also had a long list other than these five. That was the first thing that I realized, these spiritual elders of mine don't even read the catechism. Yeah. And that's been, unfortunately, a really consistent theme since then. Mm-hmm. We're not even talking about whether or not they understand or agree or want to understand Pope Francis's teaching. Do they even understand what's in the catechism? Right.
3: It's
2: not even anti-intellectualism. I don't know what it is. I'm a parish catechist. That's my Mm -hmm. day job. The catechism Mm -hmm. is my life. Mm -hmm. To just not care, or to flat out contradict, ignore what's in the catechism just blows my mind. If you're going to present yourself as a Catholic intellectual or a theologian,
1: yeah, yeah. I think people people don't know. I'm not going to go into the deep dive of the biographical, which is really, to be honest, that's the context for me of that post. It was very much. A note to my spiritual elders and I could almost call them out name by name and the way I framed it was in this idea of remembrance just remember and I think at the time and to that I still believed that they had it that they could recall it that it was a mere loss of memory but that they could go back and they could recover it I have to say in the years that have passed since then I've become skeptical that they ever had anything or that all of them had as much or that to the extent to which they had something it's not as obvious to me anymore that this is simply a case of like oops yeah right we'll get back I, th- I think we're in something much more serious now which means that i can't simply say let's hit the reset button and go back to normal but that we need a new way to articulate the good life and human flourishing and holiness and the call to holiness and the kerygma and, and all these things in the church When you read John Paul II, by the way, in that, it really refreshes the call for a new evangelization. And you kind of realize like, ah, we didn't really get that whenever we, I didn't know it could be about that, you know. So my dad's an evangelist. My dad was in the 1970s. He was one of those drug addicts who had a major conversion experience through the charismatic renewal movement, through a priest, Father John O'Malley who was from Dublin, obviously. And my dad became a kind of a missionary, flunked out of seminary, met my mom on the road, being bilingual, being Mexican-American, being born on the border, gave him a certain uh, bicultural and bilingual ability to work. But mainly he had his story, his testimony, which is a story of a person who was a drug addict and drug dealer of hard drugs for 10 years who had a a complete and total conversion and healing of that addiction through the power of the gospel. So it's it's one heck of a story. And that story allowed him to give people a kind of personal, kind of like the confessions in a way, a, a personal ability to really feel the love of God and the fact that God could love someone doing the things that my dad was doing. And And my dad's good. He's got an affect. He's got a he's got a rhetoric. I learned rhetoric from my dad. So that was the movement I was raised in, the Charismatic Renewal movement, the Renovacion Cristiana. We were associate members of a Covenant community out of Akron, Ohio. We went that we left everything in the in the late eighties to to go to Mexico and help them resituate their mission there after they failed in Honduras us because they forgot to tell their bishop or learn Spanish or a bunch of other basic things you would think they would have done. My dad ended up leaving that, mixed reasons and feelings, going to work in the kind of diocesan environment, was the first pastoral coordinator appointed by Bishop Michael Pfeiffer in the St. Angelo Diocese. And so I was raised in rectories. I was raised in missions. I was raised in, in, I mean, my day at dad's office was like sitting in front of Father so-and-so's bookshelf. Literally, the parish secretary taught me how to swim, this nice, wonderful Melanie, a wonderful Filipino woman at my dad's first parish where I was born, at the Good Shepherd in Brownsville, Texas. So, like, (laughs) I said I wasn't going to get biographical, and then I immediately get biographical. (laughs) What I want people to know, though, is, yes, I understand. There's a kind of a cradle Catholic thing. I was a cradle Catholic and arguably the most graphic Way, which included, by the way, an enormous amount of suffering, material poverty, seeing the way in which the church is not built to support lay people who have a heart and skills for this mission, seeing my family live on the whim of other people in the church's desires and tastes and and those kinds of things. And my dad worked for over 40 years doing this, and he's recently retired now. And during that story that my dad is the plank for, and that our family, we really saw ourselves as a missionary family working in this kind of John Paul II idea of new evangelization, uh, uh, evangelizing the baptized, you know, all that kind. That was our life. That was our life. That's all I knew. I, I was sent to Franciscan with no money in my pocket because a friend who was a former Companions of Christ, who was at the time a Companions of Christ priest, our, my first Canadian connection, called Father Michael Scanlon on the telephone and said, I don't know if you remember Noe Rocher. Sure, you know about him, but like his son's, he's wicked smart and he, he they can't afford anything. So, and he just said, come on up, right? That's me. So I show up at Franciscan University of Steubenville, an unofficial Father Michael Scanlon scholarship awardee before it existed and was adjudicated. I became a Gates scholar because that application was still unresolved at the time. But those are the conditions in which I came in. I studied philosophy. I studied honors. I studied great books. I studied Spanish literature. And it was right then and there at Franciscan where I first faced my first challenges, which were from the personalist tradition, John Crosby, John White. and But most of all, the person who challenged me the most was, was Father, Father uh, Conrad, who challenged my provincialness, who challenged my smallness, who challenged how he was a scholar of medieval history and just how I just didn't know anything. And I came to Franciscan raised in this way, thinking I I basically knew everything. I had read the catechism probably twice cover to cover by that time. It was a big event in my house whenever the, the, the new catechism came out and whatnot. So I'm saying all this to say that when I wrote that, I was actually in despair because the promises were being broken. And as far as I could tell, there, It was a moral and spiritual and emotional and psychological torture to say, if I let go of all this, my life has no meaning. My existence basically has to reset itself. And I don't think any of us wants to just randomly, for no reason, press the reset button on like the meaning of life. I wanted then for my story to make sense again. It was very personal. I wanted to have a shot at my ideas of what it means to be human, what, what it means to be a, a Christian, what it means to be a Catholic, what it means to be a man, what it means. I wanted that to have some meaning. But I was also projecting the fact that I, I remember whenever just, I remember where things started shaking up. I think no one wants to see their very like existential reality put at risk by, by religion in general. But that's how deep this cuts for me because I don't have anything else. So, And by the way, being a missionary and moving around means I don't really have a geographic place, but I could say 19 other things. I went to matriculated through 13 different schools. I don't have a home except for in the church. For me to see my elders, I remember George Weigel coming to Franciscan University to promote his biography of John Paul II and me challenging him on questions of torture and the question of uh, capital punishment. And I remember what would become, of course, a very predictable reaction. But at the time, that was new. It was a kind of, it was generally scandalous to me in those early days that, like, oh, you would balk at the fact that like my sources here at John Paul II, my sources here are within the patrimony of our tradition. And you just think I'm a leftist. I've never met a leftist before yet. You know, at that time I had it. When I wrote that piece, I was speaking, and, and I think it's important for people to know this because i I know I'm criticized, probably justly for a number of things, but I think sometimes like religious people critique me as like as kind of uh overly dramatic, loudmouth or whatever, but the drama and the volume relates directly to the fact that my experience of religion has never been an optional add-on to my life it's always been existentially all the way into the very core of who I am. So when I wrote that, I was writing from a very, a very deep wound that was developing that I thought could be healed through remembrance. And all I'll say in addition is that it's not obvious to me anymore that the remembrance needed will just be a simple memory. I think we need anamnesis, which is what Plato and Paul and Luke the Greek word for remembrance, which is a deeper recollection. Uh, I see this as very much in line with the critique of the Novo Theologie, which was, I thought, very constructive, the ressourcement. Yes, we do need reform. Yes, we do need to push. Yes, we do need, and we need to remember our sources. And so for me, this is all within the kind of hermeneutic of continuity, ressourcement, added with it maybe some of the Latin American flair. But to be honest, I've come to that late. I, that wasn't the, the, the core of what I grew up with. And that letter I wrote was really written in a poetics. If you read it, you'll see that it's not really prose. It's almost poetry. And I only write poetry when I'm in love or whenever I'm falling out of love and I don't want to, unrequited love. And that's how it felt. And it's, I think I'm over that now. I'm not as upset as, as I was. Only when I recall it do I get upset again. Now I'm ready to go to work. But I think a lot of people need to feel really deeply how... how far in this blade can go for people. And I think that some have not yet appreciated the fact that, no, this is not a podcast, bro culture, politics. We haven't even said the word Trump, right? Like that's not, that's this is not that, right? And it's, it's an alienation, really.
2: Your story, Sam, very different than mine, extremely different than mine. I live right now 12 miles from where I grew up. I went to college an hour away. But so much of your feelings that you described, I have certainly felt, especially in the past. I've felt betrayed by people who, my spiritual elders who I trusted, and not just betrayed, but where, like I mentioned earlier, where I walked away and I felt like my conscience was abused by them. Mm-hmm. The story that resonated with me is the, the story from John chapter 6 where Jesus gives his great bread of life, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, discourse you must eat my flesh and drink my blood and the crowds leave and he turns to the apostles he says you're going to leave too and Peter says we have nowhere else to go Mm -hmm. I I don't hear that triumphalistic I hear that almost like I want to (laughs)
1: leave
2: but I'm stuck I have nowhere else to go yeah and and I I have very much felt that where I'm like I don't want to be here, but I can't leave either. It's the hotel um,
1: California. <laughs> you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave.
2: Yeah, yeah. The thing for me, especially, I think in the, in the past year too, is to not let that move to bitterness. To how can that move to work and not to just being an embittered Catholic?
1: I think that's I think that's really crucial. And I think what's especially important about that need to move in a direction that doesn't allow oneself to become cynical is is aided by study and so yes of course trump had a lot to do with 2017 but it wasn't trump alone it was the the stark contrast of people who were literally on the one hand bending over backwards to twist francis's words into any harmful statement they could find the chair of peter right (laughs) And on the same exact time, were bending themselves equally in contorted ways to not have to feel in any possible sense morally abrogated by openly supporting Donald Trump. Some people think it's just Trump or that it was just some kind of Francis thing. For me, it never was. It was the contrast and the sharpness that contrast created in terms of a lens and instead of causing me cynicism, I think it caused me great despair and sadness. And for now, I think though it's time to work on some healing and also to focus. And this is where I think Gloria's Purvis's voice is so important. What are the other wounds that have also existed? and been here that I haven't seen? Like, what are the things that are not necessarily my biography that I've been missing? And I have to say, Black Lives Matter from the secular reality in in our world all the way to the way in which it's been festering in our church, listening to black voices in the black church, like that to me is, it's odd. It's like a Felix culpa for me. It's on the one hand, it, it breaks my heart. On the other hand, it, feels me with a kind of solidarity of a kind of suffering that wow my pain isn't the only pain my biography isn't the only biography in fact i'm missing things and my misses then put me on the side of the person who if i choose to look away i become just like the person who's contorting themselves to forgive trump but in, you know indict francis and so i'm called to live out my faith and i think that's the the move i'm finding most productive while at the same time not letting anyone off the hook when it comes to the details, when it comes to the facts, to the kind of postmodern hermeneutics and stuff like that. And, and I have to say, there was a time where if I cast out on like a leftist, socialist sounding thing, I knew I was going to be alone. I knew even the people who agreed with me would pat me on the back, but I knew they wouldn't say anything. And if I ever talked about race, and I'd actually been doing that for a while, like I knew that I was going to have to stand there and basically do it alone. And this last wave that the segment began on, I have not experienced that. I've actually experienced an enormous uh, amount of community and solidarity and new relationships formed and a kind of thirst that I, I wanted to believe was there in principle but now I really see as being there in reality. And so I have a lot to be joyful for. I think we all do to, to be happy about. And if in, in the providence of God's plan, Francis's uh, time, which of course began with the scandal, the beautiful scandal of Benedict stepping down for the first time in 800 years in full conscience, in full possession of his mental faculties, a clear rational action of I quit. If, if what this does to the church is allows us to renew ourselves through the pain and the suffering uh, th- that's always existed and in every season has to be renewed in this way, I'm okay with that, and I think it's all to the glory of God. That's, I guess for
0: me, my, now my story, and not to compete biographies, but I grew up in, in a very staunch Catholic environment. I I would have to say of anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s, like I had the most 1950s Catholic upbringing (laughs) possible. You know, Mm. my grandfather was traumatized by Vatican II. Mm. He was a loner, didn't have a lot of friends, Mm. read a lot of Triumph magazine and The Wanderer and Malachi Martin novels. My mom learned a lot from him about her faith. She got active in the pro-life movement, Mm -hmm. but we weren't really joiners. We weren't the type that would, I mean, I'm, I'm right now, I'm sitting 3.4 miles away from the house where I grew up. For me growing up, it was a little isolating because I was sent to a relatively liberal parochial school, K through eighth grade. And I would be taught these things at school, like communion in the hand, or <laughs> this is how you, you say the Hail Mary with the word you instead of thee. Those are just small examples. But I would come home and have that condemned Mm -hmm. that this isn't the real faith. This isn't the real church. So I, and then I went to an extremely liberal Catholic high school where everything I was taught, you know, my mom would review the religion books and see how heretical they were. And I, I I mean, some of them were, I think Richard McBrien's Catholicism was my sophomore year (laughs) text, my sophomore year religion textbook, but we weren't really connected even to a traditionalist. We went to the, we were the tongue receivers at the regular suburban. Yeah, parish. Yeah, yeah. So it was sort of, I, I had developed this bunker mentality.
1: A proto-trad.
0: proto-trad. Catholic guilt. I understand that 100% because it was sort of like, I, I saw Catholicism as, okay, so when you're baptized, it's like filling up your gas tank, right? And then mm-hmm. every time you commit a venial sin, you use a little bit of gas and then if you commit a mortal sin, it drains the entire gas tank and you have to go to confession mm-hmm. and you fill that gas tank back up. And basically if you die, when that gas tank is empty, you're going to hell. That was sort of my the mm-hmm. my entire worldview in terms of religion. And I, so it was very, and I mean, you know, they did their best. It wasn't, I I don't want to like totally trash them. And I was certainly well catechized. I certainly, was mm-hmm. very well schooled in a lot of these sources that influence today's Catholic reactionaries because I was a proto-Catholic reactionary. Mm-hmm. Like Taylor Marshall's book on infiltration.
1: Infiltration, yeah.
0: That's 1970s stuff. These are my grandfather's yeah. old books that are being compiled in yeah, a yeah, sloppy yeah. way. It's not anything new. Yeah. And I, So the thing is, around the year 2010 or so, started the first time in my life going to daily mass, going to weekly adoration, had a bad experience with a quote unquote, rigid, traditional type pastor, the type of person who wasn't friendly and was a little cold and, but had a personal interaction with him, with my family that sort of set us adrift and went parish shopping for the first and only time in my life really. Mm. And um, wound up at a new parish it's just a blah suburban parish. But then mm-hmm. after a couple of months, the pastor made an announcement said, I'm leaving. We're getting this new pastor. And my brother was in seminary at the time. I had never heard of the new pastor, but I emailed my brother like, what's the scoop on the new guy? And he's <laughs>
3: like,
0: You have never seen anything like him. Like God put you in this parish.
3: Wow. And
0: so this is 2011 or so. And there's new pastor comes in, Father Dan, and he's, totally 100% orthodox, totally 100% like into confession, adoration, the sacraments, pushing, that kind of thing, but had a total heart for the poor. Mm -hmm. One of the things, so my brother was actually served as a seminarian under him. And he's like, I've never seen a priest so busy in my whole life. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. what does he do? Because to me, it's like, well, what do they meet with the Tuesday, you know, senior lunch club and maybe do a hospital run and then have a parish count? Like I I couldn't conceive. Mm -hmm he's like, he meets with people. And I'm like, who does he meet with? He's like, people, you know, that need to have problems or something. And I'm like, and and so to, so basically this, it kind of caused this, it opened my eyes to what a pastor is, to what accompaniment means. Huge heart for the poor, totally reinvigorated the parish, totally, it became a draw. Started a men's group, it was you know, 50 guys every Saturday. I he made me organize it because I was a seminarian's brother. Um, okay, 50 guys at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. In the and it was like my heart was alive on the faith, just like you, it, Deus Caritas est mm-hmm. God is love. That one sentence in the introduction about encounter with a mm-hmm. person I thought that was Protestant stuff walking mm-hmm. with Jesus. To me, yeah. it was don't commit mortal sins or go to hell. That was my religious worldview. Mm-hmm. So it was like, so twenty twenty 2011, 2012, 2013, I'm all fired up for the faith. The other thing about Father Dan is he didn't know the names of any bishops or anyone over in Rome, any cardinals. He didn't care, he didn't know, like whatever. Like when the new translation of the missile came out, he like didn't practice or avoided the whole topic until that Sunday. and. Then, <laughs> <laughs> and that just winged it, total, total make a mess. But then when when Pope Francis was elected, and he starts talking about how pastors need to smell like the sheep, mm-hmm. and the church needs to be a field hospital, mm-hmm. and compared the rigid pastor against the pastor that accompanies, mm-hmm. and I and it was like I know I I have the two priests in my head exactly yeah. who he's talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: and so I was just over the moon. Evangeli Gaudium changed my life. Mm-hmm. It it opened my eyes to what the church can and should be. And then it was like six or seven months later, I started to notice that people I respected, people that I looked up to, people who I had thought, I thought had figured out what it took me, had long ago figured out what it took me the first 30 years of my life to figure out about yeah. the faith and about relationship with Christ and about evangelization and about selflessness and about understanding people. And I see, I saw them turn on the Pope. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because you mentioned Dawn Eden Goldstein before, yeah, but yeah. we've gotten to be, fr- I didn't know her until all this stuff, where Peter is and all that, but she happens to live in DC. So we've gotten together and we've become Good friends, but I, I said to her, it was like I woke up one morning and all of my Catholic friends hated the Pope. Yeah, yeah. And I, I and they were using some of this rhetoric. Cardinal Burke wrote the day of Amoris Laetitia when it came out. He wrote in the Register that it's not magisterial. Mm-hmm. And I thought to I, I thought to myself well, it is magisterial, but they're like, no, Cardinal Burke says it's not. And I'm like, so then a few months later or whatever, Pope Francis actually does say this is part of the magisterium explicitly. And I thought, oh, this will prove to them. The other thing that happened to me was the mentality I grew up with. One of the greatest fears was a heretical Pope. That's the fear of quasi SSPX people. It is... The SSPX people, they're good at it. They've done it for 50 years now, but I knew that fear. And when I started in that same period where I was going through this conversion of heart, reading about papal primacy and being like, you know what? I don't need to regulate what's going on in Rome. I don't need to tell my bishop and the Pope what to do. This is what the church believes about divine assistance and about the Holy Spirit protecting the church it was so freeing. And so when Pope Francis started doing things a little bit differently and people, I was like, we don't have to worry. The Holy spirit is guiding the church. The, the, the Pope can't promulgate heresy on an official level and bind us to it. And people were saying, no, he can be a heretic. And I, I was reading <laughs> Pius Ninth through Benedict and they were all, and consistently they were saying the Pope guides the church or the Pope is the authentic interpreter of scripture and tradition. And people are like, yeah, but Francis isn't doing that. So he's not. Hmm. And I was like, it's not saying unless he opts out. (laughs) So so, so that's encapsulating sort of where I was when I felt like I had to do something. And so Mm -hmm. for a big chunk of that, I was working at USCCB and I was telling anyone I can, this is what's going on. Mm -hmm in our culture, in our Catholic culture, and nobody's addressing it. And then I got laid off and I was like, maybe I'll, I'll try to do something on my own. And then I come to find out you didn't find out we existed until three months ago, <laughs> even though you were our, you're our patron saint. So. Uh, don't say Don't say <laughs> yeah, it. No, you're you're going to
1: have to edit that one out. <laughs> okay. uh, or leave in me telling mm-hmm. you that you have to lay, uh, edit it out. <laughs> um, I'm just the worst actually at keeping up with, with the online stuff. There was another post I did where I actually proposed that we need to share our stories. We need, we need to like tell each other. It's the old evangelical idea of sharing your testimony. We need to share our testimonies. Maybe not just in, a, in the sense of the story or conversion, but like just our stories. Because on the one hand, I'm worried that there are people without stories who are just doing stuff. Like They just have Fox News on all the time and then EWTN. And then all their media is doing something and they don't have a story. All they have is an ideological cocoon. And I think the only thing that can break either through that cocoon or that can break it from the within is like our stories. And I think these subjective tools we have to make meaning out of our, out of our lives in, in relation to the church is really important. And I think especially right now, there's a lot of people who fear things that I think are more fundamental, I think you nailed it. And I'm really interested with Paul being a, a catechist, like what maybe he'll think I'm wrong about this. But I, I went to Steubenville where like the routine for me, I was a pretty heavy partying Steubenville student. Like actually a lot of us were and are. We were kind of projecting ourselves. So like, you think we're a bunch of holy rollers. We're going to drink seven times more than you think we can. Like that was our a lot of our the ethos of the time. And I played rugby or whatever. So a lot of the routine there was that you do whatever you want on Saturday. And then, of course, because you did whatever you want, you can't make it to morning mass because you're passed out or whatever. But then you go to the sinner's mass and you go early so you can go to confession. refill you your tank and then you go to mass. And it was called the sinner's mass. And essentially it was like a lifeline spiritually for us. And there's something stupid and silly and very collegiate and about that. But one of the things I learned by watching my friends was that Their idea with respect to personal sin, and it created this really bizarre scrupulosity, and and even more, a bizarre practice of their faith, where they weren't seeking to become holy. They weren't seeking to glorify God. They were seeking to keep their checkbook, their, their Catholic checkbook in the black, so that whenever they died, they would be able to reap the rewards of a great insurance plan they had bought. More and more, it became fairly clear to me that this foundation of faith would be incapable of withstanding any possible cultural opposition and would basically bend, not because of a failure of their own will, but because of a failure of the development of their will and their conscience by this really thin veneer of, of faith. And that took me back to like, you think you're a good person because you go to church and all this stuff, but what's your relationship to Jesus like? What's your prayer life like? How, how much do you read scripture? Are, are you empowered with the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit? In the context of the charismatic renewal, that, that sounded really grandiose and there was a lot of music to go with it and a lot of branding and it was a thing. But even when you break it down beyond the charisms of the particular spiritual expression, you, I think you can see that. And I hope we don't get lost in like Vatican conspiracy theories and then the anti-conspiracy conspiracy theories, and then everyone's just touting their own conspiracy. This is really, to me, about the central core gospel message and the fact that the Christian devout life is not reducible to a series of credits and debits of personal sin, that we're not even individuals in this thing, that we're parts of a community of a church. And to me, those far deeper wells will make up for the cultural problems at this point in time as I think we can see but I believe this is going to be a great battle a great battle and I hope everyone who has a feeling and a sense of solidarity with these ideas is ready to really fight and fight hard in charity and with goodwill but to fight because I think that in the America America has succumbed to itself and we're in this kind of move between the Pax Americana and the American pox of COVID. And I I think this is a time for a kind of Christian witness that can actually call people who way before all this were were going to Sinner's Mass, (laughs) good Steubenville graduates, and who never really understood what the call to Christ is, what it means to be a Christian, to call them maybe for the very first time. And so again, I'm like wildly optimistic, as odd as that might sound about the spiritual situation in the United States now. I think we're living on the verge of a great renewal and a great time of, of realizing that the purpose of the Christian life is personal holiness, which is not individual holiness. We don't go pop into heaven or purgatory or hell as units of one. We're members of a body. And second of all, the ultimate ad majorum de gloriam, the, 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 to give glory to God, that, that our lives are an act of worship in and of themselves and not my life individuated, but my life within its full spectrum in my family all the way out to the church. And so to me, these are the truths that we can't lose. And I sometimes worry that I don't talk about them enough because there's so much juicy bits, right, to get around and, and jump around. But I hear that in your story and I see it in my story. And I'm sure, Paul, you could jump in with yours and and you noted some of that. And so, you know, these are the universals that emerge from the particulars, right? These are the eternal objective realities that emerge from the subjective personal biographies. And I think that what we've done here is actually a really good exercise of that.
2: I'm like cheering internally as you're speaking, because it's not just my personal experience, but what I do in ministry, but also what the very heart. Of our tradition the very heart of the catechism and the very heart of pope francis is exactly what you're saying where holiness isn't sin management that's not at all what holiness is if you go back to paragraph one of the catechism it's god giving us his divine life to make us like him us not me us all of creation being drawn back into himself us becoming other christ through sacramental grace i mean this is the kerygma i go back to in my ministry i go back to Evangelii gaudium the mm-hmm. pope talks about the kerygma and he says you cannot have church renewal or evangelization without the kerygma first and he says the kerygma is the first proclamation of the gospel both in a in a linear sense so it's the first thing we tell people but he mm-hmm. says but also in a qualitative sense that's right Because everything else must rest upon this idea of God's just unending, persistent love of each one of us to draw all of us back into himself. And that's exactly the point. And that's the reason for our hope. And that's what any efforts of political renewal or church renewal have to rest on that thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we don't need to be too hard on ourselves when we fall into the scruples of a checkbook Christianity I know we've been in relationships, I have at least, where all of a sudden it becomes a management of their satisfaction and my own satisfaction and just trying to not piss one or the other off. <laughs> and tragically, I think a lot of uh, really not just casual relationships, but our relationships to our p- parents, to our spouses, to our siblings, to our beloved, can themselves descend into a kind of utilitarian exchange of just superficial and serve, surf- and, 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 and of course, ultimately our relation to ourselves, our relationship existentially. Augustine says, in, inside myself, there are many houses. He says in book nine, I grieve for my own grief, right? Our own internal capacity to exist can also feel very superficial and we can feel like cogs in a machine or victims of modern bourgeois, whatever capitalist society or whatever you want to call it, whatever language. And I think that's really beautiful because it shows us that the very alienation that we can experience in the spiritual life to the divine is part and parcel of our experience of our relationships and the rest of the world. So in the same sense that God calls us to himself, it's not at the expense of calling us to uh, a deeper uh, ability to forgive uh, those who have done us wrong or a deeper ability to remain in contact with those who we've allowed ourselves to slide away with, but that all of these virtues of the Christian life not only manifest themselves in, in in the interior part of the mystery of our relationship to, to God and to, and to the divine life, but they also externalize themselves in a heart for the poor, for justice, but even like being nicer to people and and being cruel out of a deep concern for being nice or caritas, and asking ourselves the hard questions about that. And so You know, this is, to me, the great personalist test of our time. The the last century was the century where the, the church, after being willing to maybe hold on to the tensions that modernity had given us, became like any early relationship, tested that a lot. And out of it came this beautiful, I think, approach to the Christian life rooted in this personalist idea we've been talking about, realities and stuff. Now this century I think is a century for those fruits to start being born. But they're gonna be born, I think, in the way that all things are born and you're and gonna have to let some things go and people are gonna have to change and some things will have to die uh in order for renewal to happen and that's where we are. Just like we've always been.
0: Now I, I wanna jump in here because it's uh I don't this is we're having kind of a kumbaya moment and we're all on the same page. But I wanna challenge <laughs> what you're saying. Um sure. The the post Vatican II movement in the in Latin America, the leadership in the in Latin America, people will point back at that post Vatican II era and will say we already tried all that stuff and it failed. Hmm. Leading with Jesus loves you, I didn't go to Steubenville. I never heard the word kerygma until Pope Francis put it in the middle of his book. Okay. Yeah, we didn't have that stuff in the Baltimore Catechism. I guess my question is, what would you say to the people who say, look at the decline of the church in in Latin America, look at church going and, and attendance in the U.S.? I have my own theories. Clearly, if people were as well-formed as the narrative goes, it wouldn't have crumbled as quickly as it did.
1: Sure. I mean, look, I think here there might be a slight difference of view like The church has never been a particularly well catechized and evangelized church from the earliest emergence of the church when people are literally being, who was it? Was it Ananias and Sapphira got literally turned into dust because they messed up on the, the rules of communal life. And Paul isn't exactly gentle with the Thessalonians. And in other words, come on, like. It's not my view, and again, I'm the son of evangelist. I believe deeply in the heart of of the 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 Christian gospel. But in the Confessions, the star of that story is Monica, who's horribly catechized. Ambrose has to come up to her and be like, "Yo, we don't (laughs) give sacrifices to the Roman idols on Mondays after going to Mass on Sunday. Cut it out." Oh, okay, sorry, I didn't know that. Yet Monica is the holiest person in that book. Augustine wishes he could have the faith of his mother. So I don't know. I don't really buy the idea that this that there's any clear declinist narrative at work today that i can't find at any other period of church history from the birth of the church and if we want to go further back into the torah and the tanakh into our old testament i'm willing to go there too from the fall we've never been acing <laughs> the game and, and so it takes great wit, I think, to be a, a Catholic. I think it takes great wit to live in this story that we're in. And I think it also takes great humility and also great faith in the grace of God. And obviously, this raises other tensions in terms of acts and works and our disputations with regard to apologetics. But it doesn't have to become that. So the people who say that, oh, it's this, it's that, it's actually a very modernist uh, technique to to apply a very presentist account of a sort of snapshot of maybe 75 years or so and use this as a key signifier of a tradition of over 2,000 or 2,500 years. This is not uh, really Catholic even. And so the concerns that people have with respect to how the church is faring in this season or in the next, I think they lack a certain theological foundation. And the theological foundation is ultimately Christ's promise to Peter. And if you if you do not if you're not willing to face that promise upon this church, you should probably not be doing the down the road work that you're doing. You need to go back, I believe, to that initial promise and be willing to face things. I just love Augustine. Sorry, you guys, but you know when Augustine was writing his Retractions at the end of his life whenever he was penning his last final works as bishop of the Diocese of Hippo, the Vandals from present-day Germany were descending upon North Africa, upon the Alexandrian church, burning and looting and destroying. Augustine was harsh on heretics. In City of God, we see this. But he loved Plato. Uh, he, was, he was not a person who minced words. He was not someone who was afraid to oppose people. Yet Augustine chose to write his retractions, and he didn't go out with a sword in hand. He didn't raise an army. He, in many ways, he allowed Hippo, and as one of the great last doctors of North African church, which is never really resurrected aside from the Coptics who continue to stand in their antiquity you know, as a bulwark of Christianity in, in Africa, Augustine was the last of, of that church, and it's never made it. Sometimes the blood of martyrs is just the blood of martyrs. Yet still, we have his story. We have his confessions. We have his teachings, which by the grace of God survives somehow. Who knows how much we've lost of that. And we could say the same thing of Origen internally and his kind of falling out. The reason I say this is that like, do we really believe that we're living in an age in in which the vandals are descending upon the church, destroying and looting it, and then after them will come another uh, religion, Islam, and take over what's left in the ashes and and nothing will ever emerge. Do we really, are we so dramatic as to believe that this cynicism or despair or whatever is even comparable to that? Even if it is, look what Augustine did. Look what our church father did in the face of that. He had faith, he believed in Christ's promise, And he called us to be like his mother, Monica, and I'm being Marian here too, because I think there's something going on there in the way he talks about Monica. This to me is far more Catholic than a demographic analysis of the church qualitatively. Is the church in Africa really actually the same quality of church as it is in Europe? Well, first, that's kind of racist. Second of all, you know, I mean, take it easy. And and also, Maybe you should read about the Philippines, my brother. Maybe you should check out the Indian church, which has been sort of like in the middle of this nasty caste dispute between the Hindus and the Muslims for generations and generations, yet none the long has endured. And, And the thing here, though, is it's a classic American fallacy that love is won through triumph. But the Christian story is always that love is won through defeat, that love is won through weakness, that love is won through smallness, that love is won through the cross, And I think the American imperial doctrine is really just a poison that's infected the imagination of those who believe that the church could even fall. Because the wit of this whole thing is when you win through defeat, every time they have you down, you have them right where you want them right? Every time they have you down, it's like Ignatius of Antioch's letters to the Romans. I can't wait. This is exactly what we've been waiting for. And I think sometimes that can get a little creepy, a little kind of suicidal and stuff. But I, I think we don't need to become fatalists and we don't, we don't need to be unconcerned for the faith of my brother and my sister, for the faith of my children, for the health of my parish, for certainly the, the global church and this networked global society we're living in that we're on Zoom with now without falling victim to other exaggerations, I think we can take these sort of questions of what about the decapitated statues or what about the burning churches in France or what about the this, that, or the other and say, look, if you really care about this, there's a library. You can go to that library and you could read the annals of history and you can see all the comparisons and you can read of the saints that rose up in that time. Then you can pray to those saints to help give you faith and to fortify your faith in Christ. And if you want one, I'll give you Augustine right? That to me is the Christian response to this. What I don't like is whenever the so-called other side tries to respond on the same sociological demographic accounting terms as they are. Well, actually, the data suggests some. No, 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 no. I don't think we have to have a data discussion. I don't think I have to go in and defend Latin American Catholicism or blame it on the Protestants, or which is their triumphalist idea of, of a kind of individualist Pax Americana that frankly is not a part of our faith and was even declared a heresy if they want to go to the books by a Pope long before Vatican II.
0: This concludes the interview portion of part two of our podcast with Sam Rocha. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us here in Peter's Field Hospital. Once again, thank you to our Patreon sponsors, and I encourage anyone who enjoys this program or enjoys our website to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor and helping to support our work. Finally, I'd like to leave you with another song by Sam Rocha. This one is Samuel's Song. Samuel's
4: oh, is your handiwork the stars they shine your light You live inside my heart its dance it's your delight You live inside my heart its dance is your delight Contradiction is your dwelling, gray, vast and small. You part the waters of the sea and mark the sparrows fall. You part the waters of the sea and mark the sparrows fall. Your gracious. forsake the other parts that I cannot confess. Do not forsake the other parts that I cannot Speaking to myself, superstitious, unaware. Where two or more are gathered, you are surely there. Where two or more are gathered, you are surely there. Instead, you bathe though they be of clay. My feet, instead. You you cannot sow you harvest from the seed that you cannot sow among friends there's no need for justice Aristotle said the Son of Man has no place, no place to rest His hand. The Son of Man has no place, no place to rest His hand.